0: 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. We spent the last four weeks in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 reviewing eschatology. Eschatology means the study of last things. So eschatology, you got to think end of the world. We talked about the rapture. We talked about the Antichrist. We talked about the restrainer. We talked about the great deception that is coming upon the world. And while those were... Fun in a lot of ways to talk about. It's always fun breaking down theology. It's not exactly a happy thing to discuss when you're talking about the great deception that is coming upon the world. You know, some people I know, and I used to be this way when I was younger. When we talk about hellfire and brimstone, you kind of get revved up like, all right, today, finally get to turn it loose. But as I've gotten older and I've lived a little longer and studied the word a little more and hopefully grown up, I realize those are not fun things to talk about. Talking about the whole world being deceived to go after the Antichrist to indulge their own lusts and then turning around and seeing that we've got the same kind of thing going on around us today, that's not fun to talk about. And it doesn't always have to be fun when we're studying the Word of God, obviously. But I will say this. It is not appropriate for Christians to spend all their time brooding on dark subjects. And we can do that. We feel extra spiritual when we're talking about unpleasant things. You know, we're talking about sin. We're talking about judgment that will feel very spiritual. No one else wants to talk about this. But it is equally spiritual and almost, I would say, more so to be delighting in the Lord, to be reveling in the joy of what God has done. And that's what we're going to do today. And this is what Paul, Silas, and Timothy, the authors, are very quick to do. They finish talking about the Lord sending a great deception upon the world and Antichrist rising. And then in verse 13 through 17, he's going to bring it right back. And so today we get to rejoice. We're going to talk about the joy that has been given to us, the comfort that is ours because of the gospel. And today what Paul really emphasizes is the fact that God initiated the gospel. Isn't that a good thing? This was our idea that we made up. Say, hey God, maybe you could send your son to die. Would that be be okay? You You wouldn't like it if somebody suggested that to you, now would you? But the Lord himself initiated that. And at the end, Paul's going to talk about comfort and grace and love and joy. And I'll just say it. We know it to be true. So many Christians are living without those things today. Joyless, comfortless, hopeless, desperate Christians who believe in Jesus Christ, who believe that they're going to heaven someday, who believe the Bible, but they have not realized, we use that word a lot, but to make real, to realize what God has done for them, and what that means. And believe it or not, what you believe is kind of important. Even the world gets that, right? Even the world, even psychologists understand that. It's like, well, we need to change the way that you think, and that will help you get over some things. Well, God knew that thousands of years ago. That's why everything hinges in the Bible on faith, because what you believe affects how you act and what you think and what you say. And there are so many believers that God wants to give joy and peace and comfort to who do not understand the hope of salvation, and so they miss it. So today, we're going to be reminded. So if you're here today and you're like, that's me. I don't have joy. I don't have hope. I don't have comfort. I'm here to tell you, yes, you do. But you need to realize it and allow the Lord to speak it to your heart and not be resistant to what the Holy Spirit is trying to say to you. And I've titled this today, Gospel Rhapsody. A rhapsody is a musical form. It's free-flowing. It feels improvisational. It's usually very exultant and joyful and happy. And that's really what this passage is. Paul just exulting in the gospel, rhapsodizing about the gospel. And so after coming off of talking about the Antichrist and the restrainer and the deception, today we get to celebrate the good news. That's what we have, isn't it? It's no good just to talk about all the awful things that are coming, and don't you know judgment's coming, and call yourself a Christian. No, no, a Christian has good news. Keith Green said, I'm not a prophet of doom, I'm a prophet of love. Somebody used to say, well, you're just talking about sin. And he's like, yeah, because I have good news. Prophet of love. If we do not ground your attitude and your behavior in the gospel, your joy and your peace are going to be fleeting. But the good news is that the gospel is not shakable or wavering. And that's what your joy and your peace can be in Christ Jesus. So let's read now verses 13 through 14, and we'll get right into it. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the authors are transitioning out of the section on eschatology, the last thing we read about those who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. And immediately we have a contrastive conjunction. But you. Says there's, the, there's them who will be deceived, who delight in unrighteousness, but we give thanks for you. It's the same phrase they used back in chapter 1, verse 3. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers. So he's emphasizing in this section assurance, which has been the point of this whole chapter. You remember the Thessalonians had been deceived By somebody telling them that the day of the Lord had already begun. You've missed the rapture, you are in the judgment, and you better brace for impact because here it comes. And Paul writes this whole section telling them, no, you guys, if this hasn't happened and this hasn't happened, then the day has not come. God is restraining evil. So he's trying to remind them, listen, it's okay. This This is a very comforting letter. And now he's going beyond just the immediate comfort to Large-scale comfort. They are not part of that great deception, but they are, let's look at it, beloved by God, chosen by God, the first fruits to be saved, sanctified by the Spirit, believers in the truth, called through the gospel, destined for the glory of Christ. That's a pretty great distinction between those who will be deceived by the devil and the Antichrist, isn't it? And this is a great description of salvation in miniature, these two verses. And what I particularly love about it is, maybe you noticed it, the Trinitarian nature of these verses. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all active in these verses. And we all believe in the Trinity, but it needs to be something that is not at the back of our mind, but at the forefront of our minds. You read through the Gospel over and over again, you see Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are acting together. And folks who want to say things like, well, Trinity's not in the Bible... I sometimes question, have you read passages like this one? Have you read what it says when Paul or these other authors will use what's called Trinitarian language? They'll they'll say something that maybe isn't directly talking about the Trinity, but they use Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You're baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so we're going to break this down because this is how Paul, Silas, and Timothy break it down. That God is in all of his Trinity, worked out our salvation. So to remind us of what the definition of that is, and we have a lot of teachings and resources on the Trinity on the website. Please go check those out. The Trinity means that there is one God in three persons. One God meaning there is one essence or substance, translating a Latin word, but we'll use essence or substance, meaning there is only one entity that has the character of godness. You have the quality of humanness. Your dog has the character of dogness. Your cat has the character of catness. That is the substance or the essence. Now, God has the substance of godness. And to be a monotheist means there is only one entity that has that quality. One in substance that the ancient creed tells us should never be divided. You want to be very careful about not talking about the persons of the Trinity so much that you've separated them from one another. But God is also one in three persons. You know what a person is. You know what a distinction or a personal entity is. The problem is you've only ever encountered single person, single substance people before. So we go, that doesn't make any sense. God can't be like that because we are singular. So God himself must be singular. That doesn't follow for me. It makes sense to me that God would be greater than myself. When really we're the ones who would appear to be deficient standing next to God. Not that God is somehow doesn't make any sense. But we arrive at this, this, this formula through the scriptures. We read through the Bible and the only way to accommodate all the biblical data is to say, well, the Father is God, the Spirit is God, and the Son, Jesus, is God. But there's only one God. So how does that work? And then you read through places where Jesus says, I and the Father are one. Or in 1 Corinthians where it says, no man can know the heart of a man except for the spirit of that man. And the spirit of God knows the heart of God. Okay, so you've got this in and out thing going on. Jesus said, may they be one as you and I are one, Jesus said to his Father. And we arrive at what's called the Trinity. One in substance, three in persons. And we often say God is three in one. Yes, if you will immediately follow that by saying he is also one in three. I like to say one and three because it makes your brain sizzle just a little bit when you hear that, right? That's the Trinity. And let's see how Paul uses this doctrine and this truth about God to explain the gospel. First, look what he says. We thank God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits of To be saved. This is the first thing. It says that God chose us. The Father, the first person of the Trinity, chose us. Just take a minute and sigh when you hear that. God chose you. That word for chose could be translated preferred you. God picked you to be saved. That's what's so wonderful about weddings. He picked her. And we come to church, God picked you, He chose you to be saved. He determined in eternity past that he would initiate salvation by reaching out to save souls. Ephesians chapter 1 gives us the classic description of this, so I'm going to read it. Ephesians 1, 3 through 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Before the world began, God picked you. So the thought of, well, God sees what I am, and so he could never want me. God picked you. He's already picked you. You're already on the list. According to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. Now, we might ask ourselves, why? This is something that unbelievers will throw in our face sometimes. Why do you think that God would pick you? Why would you say God would save you? Well, what does he say? He's blessed us in the beloved. And this is where, by the way, if you're ever in a conversation with somebody who's belligerent to the gospel, you want to make a pivot and start talking about the good news, this is a great place to do it. Why would you think that God cares about you? Why would God send his son to die for you? You say, because God loves me. And God loves you too. There's something about that phrase that cuts right through all of those defenses. All the academics, all the degrees, you build all those up, you come in and say, God loves you. And they might react angrily, but that's because the Lord is speaking to them. John 3, 16, you know this one. For God so loved the world... That he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have what? Everlasting life. Romans 5.8 says that God demonstrates his own love towards us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God didn't wait for you to get holy to die for you. If you were holy, he wouldn't need to die for you. He died for you because you were a sinner and you needed salvation. God saw you. And I'm tied to this, by the way, is an understanding of sin and corruption. People are not good. This is something that the world has been trying to believe unsuccessfully for a very long time, and it's interesting to watch how, in our own culture, have you seen how it's starting to pivot? We're no longer are we assuming that somebody has the best intentions. We're no longer assuming that people are good. Instead, what are we assuming? There's something dark underneath all of this. You're a big old hypocrite. We're all sinners. And we can decry that, and there's things that we need to be worried about. But it is interesting to me that we've been yelling with our fingers in our ears, no, all people are good, there's good in all people, it's all wonderful. And the church has been over here saying, no, we're all sinners, and we need God's grace. And they say, y'all are a bunch of killjoys, and you're, you're anti-life and anti-human, and now the world is finally, you know what, I don't think we can believe this anymore. Because all these people we thought were so great, look what he was doing behind closed doors. Look what she said. And we look at it, and it's like, yeah, well, we've been saying this, you guys. I said, well, then uh, humanity is a plague. Humanity is a disease. No, humanity is loved by God so desperately that he would send his own son. He said, I'll do whatever it takes to save humanity. He chose us to be saved. And I'm not going to spend any time here speculating about God's choice. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that God sends people to hell preemptively. What it says is that God chooses people preemptively. And we say, well, that implies the second thing. It might imply it, but it never says that. And that's kind of significant, isn't it? The extent of the call to salvation is open to everybody. Jesus said in John 12, I believe it was, when the son of man is raised up, he will draw all men to himself. The point of this doctrine is not to get angry, as we often do, but to do what we did a minute ago and sigh. (sighs) God chose me. God saved me. Wasn't that the thing that caught your attention when you got saved? That God loved you so much and picked you. He says you were the first fruits. You know what that was in the Old Testament, right? Your first round of of reaping, the first fruits, right? The first fruits that are ripe off the tree, that all went to the Lord. All went there first because it was a way of acknowledging that it is God who provides, not the trees, not the harvest, not the animals. And it was a way of consecrating and sanctifying the rest. I've been reading through Exodus again. And I forgot about every firstborn child was to be dedicated to the Lord. And the priest had the right to say, we need your son to stay. We need helpers. We need prophets. We need somebody to come and work here. And they said you you would pay a ransom and you could get your son back. But that's why we see Samuel and John the Baptist and some of these brought to the Lord. Jesus was brought to the temple. Remember that with Simeon and Anna and they prophesied over him in that day? the first fruits James 1:18 says that we are first fruits that early generation of the church were the first ones brought unto the lord because it was saying there's going to be a greater harvest to follow and some of you here in this place are the first fruits of this ministry that god is doing here we're just getting started god's got all kinds of people he's going to save and bring into this place i firmly believe if i didn't believe that i wouldn't be here i believe that god has got a harvest coming So you've got to know this. You could not save yourself because you're you're full of sin and wickedness. That shouldn't take me too long to prove that to you because I think you know that about yourself. You might not like to hear me say it, but you know it's true. You're full of sin, but God saved you anyway. Salvation is not a reward. It's a gift from a loving father. You know, it's funny because I have young children and sometimes they'll start bargaining with me and wanting me to, to give them things, and if I do this, if I do that, and there's so little now that the things they can do are pretty limited, and so they'll say, I earned this by, you know, doing whatever silly thing. Here, here's an example. Micah was told, wanted some toy or other, and I said, well, you can do some chores, and you can earn the money for that, and he, his definition of chore expanded dramatically to include about anything, so he was out in the backyard with his little toy shovel digging in the, in the yard, and he comes back inside to do his chore chart, and he goes, digging is definitely a chore. <laughs> he's, he, and he's thinking, I'm going to get rewarded for, for that. And we look at that, we've got to chuckle, because it's like, that, that really doesn't deserve anything. But I love you because I'm your daddy, so I'll give it to you. That's what salvation is like. Oh, look at all these wonderful things I've done. Look at all these good works I have. Look at how righteous I am. And God goes, yeah, that's great. And you know what? I'm going to reward you for it. But salvation is a gift from me to you, God says. Praise the Lord. So that's the Father. Now let's move on to number two. God chose you as the first fruits to be saved. Here it is. Through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. So second, it says we were saved through sanctification by the Spirit. We traditionally call the Holy Spirit the third person of the Trinity, but in this case, he's listed second, so we're going to discuss him second. The Holy Spirit sanctifies. What does sanctify mean? To make something holy. To set it apart. This room is called the sanctuary. It is set apart for holy purposes. And there is past and present sanctification going on in this passage. That the Holy Spirit did at one point set you apart and sanctify you for God, but he is right now actively working to make you holy. He is working to make true in your life what God has already said to be true by his grace. John 16 verses 8 through 11, Jesus described what the work of the Holy Spirit would be. It says, when he comes, by the way, pause, the Holy Spirit is a person. He is a he. He is not an it. Mm -hmm. And I've had to tell a lot of young, very, very nice and not doing anything wrong intentionally, songwriters, I know that spirit rhymes with hear it and fear it, but you cannot do that. (laughs) The Holy Spirit is a person. You would not like it if I called you an it or your wife an it or your child an it. So don't call the Holy Spirit an it. You must understand him not as the genie in the lamp of God, but as God himself. A lot of times we come to church and we we try to almost do these weird rituals to summon the Spirit and act like we're going to control him. No, no, he's a person. Talk to him. He's right there. You wouldn't do those things about Jesus because you have a very firm understanding in your mind that Jesus is a person. You've got to have that same understanding about the Holy Spirit as well. Moving on. When he comes... He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. The Spirit is actively working on every heart to draw men to that salvation the Father ordained. The Spirit is always at work to convict the world of, it says three things, of sin... So he convicts us of the fact that sin is real and that you have committed sin. Some people need to be convinced of that. First of all, that right and wrong exist and that you are not in the right category. Secondly, of righteousness. He said, because I go to the Father, meaning Jesus would no longer be there to actively live out what righteousness looked like. So it would be the Holy Spirit's work to convict people of what righteousness is. And also concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. He calls us to receive the salvation of Christ. Because judgment's coming, but we've got good news. And that's what the Holy Spirit does. And when you go out and evangelize, you are participating in that work. And that is comforting. Because sometimes you feel like you're getting nowhere. Holy Spirit's like, don't worry about that. I'm working on this guy. I'm working on this girl. And sometimes it takes people a long time to come to salvation. But the Holy Spirit knows exactly what needs to be done. And when we believe... 2 Corinthians 1.22 tells us that the Holy Spirit seals us for salvation. The Lord puts a seal on you and says, you're mine. How do I know? Because you're full of the Holy Spirit. Which is one reason among many why we should not be afraid of the Holy Spirit. Because the Lord gives the Spirit as our assurance of salvation. We've been sanctified. You're sealed, you're sanctified, you're set apart. This one is for God's use now. That's who you are. That's what the Spirit has done for you. But also, He sanctifies you every day. Holy Spirit indwells us, the Bible says. That the Spirit comes to live within you. So just pause for a second. And acknowledge in your mind that the Holy Spirit is within you right now. That's pretty cool. It's also kind of intimidating, isn't it? Because you know what else is going on inside of you. But that's why He's there. He's there to transform your conscience. You know when you get saved... All of a sudden, the things you used to like to do, you just can't do them anymore. And you get to this point, wait a minute. This, I've never had a problem with this, but it's just not as fun like it used to be. And you start to realize, I shouldn't be, I shouldn't be talking like that. I shouldn't be acting like that around these people. It's amazing how like, total reprobate heathens will get saved, and then like a year later, they're, they're saints. They say, whoa, well, they must have been really righteous. No, they weren't. The Holy Spirit is working overtime in their heart. And yours, too. He prays for us. Did you know that? Romans 8 says the Holy Spirit intercedes with the Father for you with groanings that cannot be uttered. Amen. Just let that shake your mind a little bit later when you're praying. Know that the Holy Spirit is praying with you. Which is one reason why you shouldn't stress about am I praying the right thing? Is that the Holy Spirit's working with you? Like, I got this. I'm the one delivering the message, and I'll make sure it goes to the, to the right address. He empowers us to resist temptation. You ever be right on the edge of doing something you know you shouldn't do and you almost feel like you get yanked by your collar away from it? Like, I don't know what just happened. But all of a sudden, I I felt like somebody threw a bucket of cold water in my face. I'm like, I can't do this. What's wrong with me? That's the Holy Spirit working in your life. And also, the Holy Spirit gives us gifts to do supernatural ministry. And that's some of the fun stuff, in my opinion. The Bible says that the Holy Spirit has given each one of us a job to do in the church and supernatural power to do it. Whether that's helping in the church, showing mercy to people in the church, administrating, teaching, speaking in tongues, healing, performing miracles, pretty radical stuff. That's the church that God has empowered by His Holy Spirit. So if you think you're going to get the job done without the Holy Spirit, that's a foolish way to go. So yes, we could move this jetliner over the United States if we pushed really hard. But there's an easier way to move a jetliner. You know start the engine. Get the fuel going. Same thing for the church. We can strive and get it all done, but the Holy Spirit's like, why don't you just let me empower you to do these things? Submit to the Spirit's will for your life. You're going to love it, I promise. Now third, what does he say? Verse 14, to this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So do you see that? Father, Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ. Most of the time, by the way, in the New Testament, when you see a reference to the Lord, they are referring to Jesus, because they call him the Lord Jesus Christ, and they'll say God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Second person, the Son of God, he became a man and died on the cross for our sins and rose again for forgiveness and eternal life, and we're entering the season of every year where we remember that, and we celebrate it, and we lament on Good Friday what what we have done to the Son of God, but then we rejoice on Sunday morning because there's victory that's been won at the empty tomb. Romans 10.9 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. I don't know why we see the need to add to that so often. You confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Wow, that's awesome. That's the plan that the Father initiated. That's what the Spirit testifies of. It's the story of Jesus Christ. It's good news. Well, why doesn't God step in and put a stop to all this evil? He did. Well, why doesn't He stop it today? Because that involves judgment and the end of the world. Are you sure you want that? The Lord is showing mercy to the world by extending the salvation of Jesus Christ you've got to always respond to that christian when somebody says well why hasn't god done anything about this you say he did he sent his son jesus christ to die on the Well, why would he do that because he loves you and we're right back you see now you're giving the good news to people and he speaks here i love this of the future gospel so there's the past aspect of salvation which we call justification in that moment you were sealed right god set you apart There's the ongoing work of salvation that the Holy Spirit does in your heart. We call that sanctification. And there's a future work of salvation that will happen when you come to heaven, and it's called glorification. You will receive, he says, the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. For you, the end is not darkness, but glory. And when the New Testament talks about glorification, I almost feel bad talking about it because of the things they say. 1 John chapter 3 verse 2 says when we get to heaven says it doesn't even say what we will be because we know that we will see God as he is. The apostle John said, I don't even really know what you call that. Can you even call us human anymore? If we're so transformed that we can look God in the face? 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 4 says that you are made to be a partaker of the divine nature. That's pretty radical. Don't get all nervous, get excited. Oh, that sounds blasphemous. It's not. It's in the Bible. Romans eight seventeen says that if we suffer with him, we will be glorified with him. Revelation 2 and 3 says that God will grant you to sit on the throne with Jesus Christ. That's pretty outstanding. That's the glory that we're looking to. That's what's been downpaid by the Holy Spirit. The, that first deposit was the glory of the Holy Spirit. And if you think that that's great, just wait until you get to the real thing. That's what your God has done for you. That's your salvation. All the Trinity working together to produce that for you. There's nothing you could have done for yourself, but it's amazing grace. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Here's another memory verse you've known forever. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. So if you hear somebody boasting about their salvation, you might Want to say, do you really understand what this means? Now, we might be sitting here, well, Tyler, it's not just about what God's done. There's a responsibility for us, too. But well, we'll get to that. Just take a breath. God saved you. Your salvation does not depend on you, because if it did, it would never have happened. Praise the Lord for that. Amen? Amen. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm so unrighteous, God could never save No, No, you're unrighteous, therefore God can save you. And if you've been brought to an understanding of your own unrighteousness, then you are right on the edge of God to be able to bring you in. The Thessalonians are like us. They had a a shallow understanding of their salvation. And so when false teachers came in and started talking about the end of the world, they panicked. Same thing for us. If we have a shallow understanding of grace, we'll have a shallow experience of God's blessings. Every mental assault that comes against you is an assault against the grace of God. So I believe that God saved me. Yeah, but you haven't been righteous since he saved you. Well, well, so what about that? Paul said in Romans 7, the things that I want to do, I don't do. And the things that I don't want to do, that's what I do. Who's going to deliver me from this body of death? I'm such a wretched man. So if you feel that way, you're in good company. The Apostle Paul was like that. And he goes in, and he says, but I will give thanks to God, for there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Take delight in your salvation today. Go out with a smile on your face. People say, what are you so happy about? You say, Jesus loves me. He saved me. I get to go to heaven some. Do you want to go? Uh, okay, yeah. I, I've been to church my whole life. Oh, that's not what I asked you. Have you been born again? Does, it, does this look like your salvation? Or do you spend your whole life afraid that God's going to sneak out from behind that cloud and zap you? Because you messed up and you put one toe out of line again. The amount of Christians, unfortunately, who somehow have become convinced that they've committed the unforgivable sin... Who come to church every week and sing and pray and worship and weep over the word? The devil is a liar. Don't believe his lies. You believe the grace of Jesus Christ. God will forgive you for putting a little extra emphasis on his ability to save your soul. Right? Well, let's look at verse 15 now. So then, brothers, knowing all that, so then, stand firm. And hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Since you've been saved by God's love, since you've received God's grace, since you've been called to glory, what do we do? He says to stand firm, to hold on. There's One of my favorite movies is Master and Commander. And it's about uh, this big wooden ship during the Napoleonic Wars. And there's this old salty sailor that's got hold fast tattooed across all of his knuckles. And I love that because they're in the storm and they're fighting and the little kids are afraid and he puts his knuckles out and says, hold fast. That's what we're called to do. Hold on, hold fast to it. The same language that John uses in his gospel and in 1 John, abide. We use that, make that word all mystical for some reason. Abide means to stay, meno in Greek, means remain, hold on, hold fast, don't go anywhere because that's how branches bear fruit, Right? Only, only thing a branch has got to do to bear fruit is to remain attached. If you cut it off and you set it on the ground, it's not going to bear any fruit. Which is why it tells us to hold on, to abide. That when persecution comes, the Thessalonians were facing persecution. When false teachers come, when trials come, when you fail, I can't do it. Well, can you hold on? Can you hold on to Jesus? If you can do that, that is enough. But he says, hold on to what? to the traditions by word or by letter. This is that apostolic deposit that Jesus called this generation to deliver. Read through the first chapters of Acts again, and they're describing the work that the apostles were to do, which was to bear witness, which is why when they chose Matthias to be the 12th, they said it's got to be somebody who saw all of it because they're supposed to testify and bear witness. And this is what they were doing. They were telling the story of Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2 verse 20 says that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Apostles and prophets is a reference to Old and New Testament. You've got the apostles, New Testament, the prophets, Old Testament, and the cornerstone, the thing that is the most important is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what we build on. And Paul in 1 Corinthians will talk about when you build on that foundation, you've got to make sure you're not adding to the foundation. Because that stuff is wood, hay, and stubble, and it's going to get burnt up. Jude, verse 3, would call this the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. First John chapter 1, he calls it the things that the apostles saw and heard and touched and handled. These are the traditions Paul's talking about. Now, we today can have an overwhelmingly positive view of tradition. This is the, the Catholic or the Eastern Orthodox view that tradition is on, on par with Scripture. And they'll use this verse to... To teach that. Or we can be like many evangelical Protestants and have an overwhelmingly negative view of tradition. Which is, no, 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 rip it all up. Nothing good ever happened until we started our church or until our denomination got started. Well, that's that's not good either. Neither one of those things is right. It's somewhere in the middle. Apostolic tradition is preserved in Scripture. We don't have the word of the apostles spoken out loud, but you know what they did? They wrote it down. And you've got it in your lap right now. That's that apostolic tradition. That's why it always comes first. And there's nothing wrong with traditions. There are certain things that we hold to because the churches has believed them for a very long time. But what we learned during the Reformation, and I hope we learned it, is that sometimes the church will get so wrapped up in its traditions that they leave behind the foundation. And they're not building on the foundation anymore. They're building something else. But that doesn't mean tear apart every tradition. It means... Be a Berean, test them, come back to the Word, and see if they still hold up. And if they do, hold on to it. And if they don't, well, then hold it with a loose grip in your hand. The church has always had godly people. And we don't want to, we've had 2,000 years to to get this Christianity thing right. 2,000 years of sound doctrine and and believers and evangelism. Do we really want to chuck all that out? Because they didn't do it exactly the way we did it. I was just talking about the Trinity. Now, the Trinity's in Scripture, but that formulation I gave you is ancient. It's older than any country that's alive on the world right now. It's ancient, but we keep coming back to the Word, and we're like, they got it right. The apostolic tradition lines up with what the church has taught, the canon in the same way. We have doctrinal foundation for affirming the canon of Scripture that the church has today. Now, there are also smaller traditions, which are, this is my denomination, this is the church I grew up in, and this is the way we do things nothing wrong with that. I teach verse by verse because I think it's a good way to do it, but it's also the way that I grew up. It's how I was taught to do it, and I, I don't see any reason to abandon it, but I'm, neither am I going to beat somebody over the head who doesn't do it. I might try to persuade them that it's a good way to do it, but there's a difference between those two things. Opening church with a, with a couple songs and then having announcements and moving right into the teaching, that's a traditional way to do it. Nothing in the Bible that says we can't do that. By the way, watch out. One of these days, you're going to show up and it's going to be a prayer meeting on Sunday morning we'll do the preaching on Sunday night. Are we allowed to do that? Oh, yes, we are allowed to do that. The point of this passage, he's not laying down another level of authority, like a tradition and the word. It's tradition as long as it is substantiated by the word. Because that's the, we have it all the way back to the first century, what the apostles wrote down themselves. So we're going to give the most of our attention to that. So let me ask you, are you holding on to what you know? Are you holding fast? Are you sticking with the things we just read? Because if all that's true, if we've been loved and we've been chosen and we've been sanctified and saved, why in the world would we go after something else? But people do, don't they? 2 Timothy 4 says the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. What's itching ears? Why doesn't he talk about blank, blank, blank? I wish he would talk more about blank, blank. I really want to hear him say it. And they will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Many folks today, and this has been going on forever, but this is our thing today. They're turning aside to weird Internet teachings rather than to sound doctrine and sound churches. You say, well, this is what the church is doing, what my pastor is doing, people around me are doing. But it's really not what I'd like to discuss. It's really not getting to the conclusions I'd like to get to. So let's find what's on YouTube. And lo and behold, you can find anything you want on YouTube. Well, he's got a website. It must be legit. They don't just let anybody have a website. I mean, come on. And we have this weird salad bar approach to doctrine. I like this thing. But if I accept this doctrine, then I'm going to have to change this thing about myself. And I like this thing about myself. So let's go see if there's another teacher that says I can hold on to this. People removing themselves from the authority of the church, any church, because it seems every time I go to church, they always want to tell me the same things. Well, maybe there's something to be said for that, huh? But here's the deal, guys. If you take the the glorious gospel that we just outlined and you start messing with it, it's not going to get better. Every one of us has tried to fix something. And then by the time it's over, all we really want to do is get it back to the way it was when we started. I so, say, well, there's no joy. There's no peace in my life. And you talk to the godly folks in your life and you say, well, listen, that's because you're still trying to do it on your own. You're not letting the salvation come to you through grace. You've resisted the Holy Spirit. You've still got a belief in your own ability to do these things. You you haven't fully accepted the gospel. Therefore, you're not fully receiving the blessings of the gospel. But that is, is such a blow to our pride sometimes that we'd rather accept that the gospel is flawed than maybe I'm missing something. And what will happen is we get bitter and we fall away and we go tell people that there's nothing in that Christianity stuff. I told you I used to work with a guy who told me he tried every religion. And um, he knew I was a pastor, so this was a fun conversation. Said, I've tried every religion. And I said, you didn't try Christianity. I was, oh, yes, I did. And he told me about the church he went to. And he said, I went to church. I went to whatever for this long. And I said, yeah, well, yesterday, before we were having this conversation, you were telling me that you were sleeping around with the girls in the church and dealing drugs in the choir and all that. So you didn't try it. He goes, come on, man. I'm, no, no, no. Don't tell me you tried it. You just went to church for a while. That's not salvation. That's not the gospel. That's why Ephesians four fourteen tells us not to be easily tossed about by every wind of doctrine. There's always going to be a new trend in the church. You guys, don't don't follow trends. You'll be. You know what will happen when you follow trends? You go through a cycle. You start out being sort of on the outs, and you're not on the cool trend with everybody, and you kind of get laughed at. Then when, it, when more people have accepted it, they get angry at you for not accepting it. And then eventually things start to move away. And then they say, maybe they had something after all. Then we come back and, oh, you're a prophet. You're so wonderful. You stood on the truth this whole time. Have you seen this new thing that we just found? And round and round it goes. You've got to commit to knowing what has been passed down. Hold on to it. And it's important to know this too, by the way. He's talking about salvation and being chosen by God and predestination and all the rest, but he immediately goes in and says, so hold on and stand firm. The Bible never gives an out to flimsy Christians. Ah, I've been saved. I can go do whatever I want. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says, hold fast, stand firm. Yes, you are elect and predestined, but the Bible never then says, so go out and do whatever you want. I'll come pick you up when it's over. Hold on. The church will surge. The church will flow away. There will be trends. There will be pressures. One of my favorite songs that really helped me when I was going through a rough time, and not a Christian song, but the Lord certainly used it, there's a line where he says, just keep your head above. That's all about, no, I don't feel like you've got to stand up and conquer the world. Just, just keep your head above the water for a while. If you, if you don't like that illustration, remember what Finding Nemo taught us. Just keep swimming. Amen. Can you do that? Sometimes as a Christian, you're like, well, I can't be like George Mueller. I can't be like Billy Graham. Well, can you keep going? Look at him. Peter's walking on water. I don't need to walk on water. I need to keep my head above the water. I can do that. I can dog paddle. (laughs) I can't swim like Michael Phelps, but I can keep swimming. That's all that God asks you to do. And if we do that, we get to verses 16 and 17. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. So they finish this section with a benediction, asking that Jesus Christ and God the Father will comfort and establish them. Little side note, Paul is here actively praying and asking Jesus Christ to do something for the church. Don't ever let anybody tell you that the Bible does not say Jesus is God. May our Lord Jesus Christ grant you comfort and hope. If Paul didn't believe that Jesus had risen from the dead and ascended to the Father and was divine, how could he believe that Jesus could do that? John 10, 30, he said, I and the Father are one. He mentions God's love. He mentions the comfort that he gives, and that's the Holy Spirit's job. He's called the comforter, right? Right? Hope through grace. So many great blessings, but so many Christians are living life without them. We say, why? Well, let's take a a minute and let's affirm that God would not withhold the fruit of the Spirit from you. Galatians 5, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, all the rest, self-control. Is God going to say, for everybody, but not for you? Mm -hmm. Watch out, because Satan will tell you that. Well, you are a special case, and God is determined not to. No, you're not. I promise you, you're not. Why do we fall short in these things? I think the answer is because we do not abide in the truth of the gospel. We let ourselves stay shallow and distracted. We dabble in the gospel. So then what do you do? You're dabbling in the blessings of the gospel. And we start saying, I've got to go find somebody to give me peace and joy. No, you don't. It's because there's no God in Israel that you've got to go find someone else. You've got to get into weird Eastern meditation. You've got to go out and get high. You've got to. You understand where I'm going with this? Your joy, which is your inheritance, Christian, stems from your understanding, number one, that God loves you. Have you accepted that as true, that God loves you? Maybe you've accepted that God loves everybody, but you have not accepted the fact that God loves you. You've got to get that, that Jesus Christ knelt down and put his hand on your face and drew you close and said, I want you to come and follow me. God loves you, not just your wife, not just your kids, not just your parents, not just the pastor, not just the people that you're evangelizing, but you. God loves you by name, individually, specifically. Number two, that God is with you, and that's where comfort comes from. Well, I know when I get to heaven, it's going to be okay, but right now it's so hard. No, the Holy Spirit dwells within you, Christian. He's with you right now. Have you received the fullness of the Holy Spirit? If not, come and let's pray. Jesus said in Luke 19, I believe it was, that God is a good father, and he's going to give you the Holy Spirit if you ask. You're not a bad father. You don't give snakes to your kids for their birthday unless they're into some sort of weird reptile terrarium thing. Father, can I have some bread? No, but you can have a scorpion. We don't do that. So why do we think, God, I need the fullness of the Holy Spirit. How dare you ask for that? Jesus specifically told us to pray To be filled with the Holy Spirit. That's where your comfort comes from. Because he takes all these truths that you know in your head and he he puts them in the furnace of your heart and the fire blazes up. And you're like, how could I ever doubt that God loves me? And number three, you've got to recognize the hope of heaven. That someday you will enter into the fullness of the glory of Jesus Christ. Have Have you made that real in your heart? Or does the thought of tomorrow scare you to death? Listen, Jesus Christ wants to give you that hope. It is yours. You have that hope and you know it up here, but you've got to let the Lord take it down into your heart and fill everything that you say and everything that you do. The Christians would be dragged into the Colosseum in Rome to be torn apart by wild beasts, praying and singing hymns to the Lord because they had hope. They knew that this is going to be our entrance into glory. They weren't freaking out. They weren't panicking. I'm sure they were afraid, but they had hope. And so they moved on. And all of this is not something you've got to earn. Now, if you just in your mind immediately thought, yeah, but you've got to be careful that you don't quench the Spirit and blah, 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 you're the one I'm talking to. Because that attitude will keep you from receiving the fullness of Jesus Christ and His joy. You don't earn these things. They're by His grace. Well, salvation is by grace. So is everything else. The gifts of the Spirit are by His grace. The fruit of the Spirit is by His grace comfort and joy and peace is by his grace. Zephaniah 3.17 says, the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. You know that God rejoices over you? I just had a baby who was born. I was rejoicing over that baby with gladness, especially your your first kid. Yes, it's a boy, and you're running around and celebrating and calling people and texting friends from high school, you know, I'm a father now, and rejoicing. That's what God does with you. He rejoices over you with gladness. God doesn't go, oh, this guy again. She's praying for this. I just answered that prayer. God rejoices over you. He will quiet you by his love. Man, I'll tell you, when you're dealing with anxiety and stress and depression, sometimes you don't need to feel good. You just want everything to be quiet. You feel like your mind is just racing, your stomach is churning. The Bible says God quiets you by his love. Like a husband taking his bride in his arms and just holding her. It's all right, I got you, I'm right here. That's what Jesus does for you. He quiets you by his love. So don't minimize his love in your life and your understanding. Everybody talks about God's love, nobody talks about God's judgment. All right, don't be surprised if you're the one that ends up afraid of the God who died to save you. And he will exult over you with loud singing. God writes songs about you. God sings about you. And now everybody got all quiet again. Come on, you just read that in the Bible. Zephaniah 3:17, He will exult over you with loud singing. Amen. You ever heard loud singing before? Yeah. Loud singing when you're when you're going to the Y and there's somebody down in the shower down there who doesn't care who hears him singing. He doesn't care if he's in tune or not. He is going to exult With loud singing, the Lord sings over you. So many times we get all analytical and intellectual and, oh, those people, they just talk about the emotions of salvation. Don't don't you have the sound doctrine and the truth? The sound doctrine leads to the emotions of salvation. The more you understand the gospel, the more excited and joyful you will become. Because God is crazy about you. Well, not me. Jesus died for you, Christian. Well, Tyler, Zephaniah is Old Testament. You can't apply that to us. Oh, yes, I can. You ready for this? He's talking about the kingdom, the kingdom that is going to come when Jesus rules and reigns for a thousand years. But the Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit has brought to us the first fruits of the kingdom and that the kingdom is lived out in your heart right now while we're waiting for the fullness to come later. So that description of the kingdom that is coming is true for you right now. So don't let the devil come in and give you all these weird like, I don't know, trying trying to like break your ankles or shake and bake to get you away from the, the gospel. Like, oh, here comes good news. Psych, we're going this way. Don't let him do that to you. Receive the fullness. Pursue the truth. It says he will establish you for every good work and word. The church has a to-do list, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. You got good works, you gotta do. Titus 2:14 says we should be zealous for good works. You're not saved by works, but if you're not zealous for good works, you should take a second look at your salvation, and maybe you need to ask the Lord to give you that. Because when you grasp the gospel, it transforms your thoughts and your words and your actions. But the best part is it's not your responsibility to transform your thoughts, words, and actions. That's the Holy Spirit's job. It's your job to say yes to the Lord. (laughs) I'll call my kids over, and I'll have a piece of candy, and then I'll say, hey, come here, open your mouth. No. Why? No, I I don't like it. You don't even know what it is. Open your mouth. I don't want it. And then you give it to him and it's a gummy bear. Like, oh, I like that. Sometimes that's what it's like when God's trying to give us his blessings. Like, here, come here. Oh, I'm, I'm afraid, Lord. Why are you afraid? I died for you. I rose from the dead for you. I sent you my Holy Spirit. The joy of the gospel, that is our strength, Christians. And we're living in days... When the church is being shaken, isn't it? We are watching Christendom, which is not Christianity. It is Christian culture. That's Christendom. American Christendom is faltering. And let me say it, maybe it's even falling. I don't know. It could be that in a few years there is no Christian culture left to speak of. But let me tell you this. As long as there are people devoted to this gospel, the best parts will always remain and will always return. Do you know that? The Thessalonians were living in pagan polytheistic Rome. They were being persecuted by the Jews in the synagogues. They were having mobs stirred up against them to drag them before the courts for unjust reasons. There was no foundation to return to. They were trying to lay a new foundation. And Paul writes to them about the joy of their salvation. This is a dark day. In a lot of ways, spiritually. You know that 2% of churches in the United States grew last year. It was the worst year for church growth since we've been tracking it. That's hard. But you know what? The Holy Spirit is still marching on. God's not done. We had, we had so many great heroes in the, in the 20th century that we look back and we thank God for. Guys like Billy Graham and Chuck Smith that just stood up and advanced the kingdom and carried the torch and then they pass it on and we're sitting there standing. at What, me now? You, you expect me to do that? The Lord's like, no, I got something else for you. You are helpless, but God loves you anyway. You are sinful, but God chose you anyway. Christ died for you. He can save you. His Holy Spirit dwells within you. He's got a plan for you. Heaven is waiting for you. And if you can believe those things, it'll change your whole life. You know what is remarkable to me? There are even unbelievers that will say, we got to get Christianity back because we know it's not true, but when people believe it, it sure transforms lives and it helps people deal with all their problems. Like, Have you maybe considered that that happens because it's true? But even, even the world can recognize that. So why bother with halfway Christianity? You're never going to impress the world. Can I tell you that right now? Well, I'm going to do this half-world, half-Christian thing, and everybody's going to see me and think, oh, I can be a Christian just like them. That's not, people don't get saved that way. Because what they're going to do, they're going to show up to the church, and we're going to be talking about heaven and hell and doctrine and holiness, and they're going to say, wait a minute, I thought I could do whatever I wanted. And people are not interested in halfway people. They don't like halfway people. We like people that stand for the truth and stand for the gospel. So stand firm on His grace. Don't let the darkness of the world shake you because you've been chosen. And the whole world can shatter around you. But if you keep following Jesus, that comfort and that hope and that joy and that peace will still be yours. Because it's a kingdom that cannot be shaken.